I hate that upper class entitlement or, you know, where someone thinks they're better than someone else. When they're, I, Honestly, it goes to my bones of like, oh, God, I, I just I hate it. Welcome back to the Understanding Men podcast, which is basically two guys talking about things that men could but don't speak about anywhere near enough. I'm Luke Sutton, and I'm once again here with my great friend, Fraser Franks. For today's episode, we are going to talk about class, not the lack of class that Fraser and I both showed on the sporting field. But what I mean by that (laughs) is what we would traditionally call the class system in our society, i.e. working, middle, upper class. We're going to just have a look at how relevant this is for men in society today and the opportunities that it affords them or doesn't afford them. And also how much of mine and Fraser's lives have been determined by it and shaped who we are today. I think this is a really, we've been actually been dying to do a episode on this for a while and we've tried a couple of ways with different guests and it's not quite happened. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this. I'm just gonna, before we dive in, I'm gonna give you an interesting stat. The British Social Attitudes Survey reported that more Britons today declare themselves as working class than they did in the 1980s, which is, you know, very interesting, a time of serious trade union power, et cetera, et cetera. And that might be something that we can just chat about a bit later on. But let's let's dive in. So, Fraser, as always, coming to you first, how would you describe, well, would you describe yourself within a certain class category and why? And how do you think that shaped you? I think I would. I think I'd say I was. I, I come from working class background. It does feel strange when you put all of that into one kind of bracket. What does it actually mean? Mm. That's what we're here I, for. Not, yeah, exactly. I'm not too sure. And I've, I've never had a real in-depth conversation on this topic. But I suppose the, the stereotypical working class kind of family I grew up in a a council estate in South London with my dad in the house for the first seven or eight years but then you know my mum and my nan and granddad took over from there but it was it was a real community but it was an estate for people that didn't have much money and needed help help from the housing association Really, some really good, honest people, hardworking people from there. But you also get people from the other end of the spectrum as well that maybe aren't so honest and hardworking and try and make their money other ways. But my background was I was surrounded by most of the people I was surrounded by didn't have much money, weren't poor. And if you if you take it out in a different context and you look across the world, you know we we always had food, we always had clothes, we went to school, we had education, we had family so I, I look at that as as being very you know fortunate when you take it and put it into a context of the united kingdom yeah it's probably a working class kind of upbringing but something i, I didn't really think about as a kid I haven't really thought much about growing up i've maybe started to see it a little bit probably in recent years of maybe different mindsets and attitudes of people from different class backgrounds but there's also a lot of myths I find within that as well. Yeah, it's across professional sport, but across society as well. I think there's a lot of myth involved in someone from a working class background and someone from a slightly, you know, more affluent background. But like, like what yeah, sort I, of thing? I, what, what sort of example? So I, I think there's a almost a tag of if you come from a working class background, you're going to be more hardworking than the person that you know went to private school or maybe comes from a bit more money and stability or a more affluent area. I genuinely don't believe that to be true. And I've seen some real good examples through my career, but some of the work that, that I do now. So I I probably had a little bit of a bias, if I'm honest, before that thinking, well, it's all right for that guy. He's got his dad that will bail him out or he's got this or he's got that. But actually growing up, I think there's a lot of intrinsic drive and motivation to succeed in, in whatever kind of background you come from. I don't think it it makes, or I've seen it, it, it isn't necessarily the guy from the working class background is going to be 
any more hard working. Sometimes the other guy's got a different kind of driving force. And I, I actually saw a really good interview with Eddie Hearn talking about this because he did come from his dad, come from nothing, really working class, built up a, a, a bit of an empire. And then Eddie came came along and was born into that wealth. But he had a real drive to almost prove people wrong that he wasn't the kid with the silver spoon and needed his dad. He And then he took that business on and elevated you know, has elevated it much more than his dad. I listen to the high performance podcast quite a bit. And there's a lot of people on there that talk about how do you instill that hunger in your kids once they've, because a lot of people that have made the money that go onto this podcast come from a really working class background. And now they've got wealth is how do you instill that hunger in your kids, which is a, you know, a debate in itself, but people like Eddie Hearn is a, is a prime example of yes, come, come from money, had a, had a good start in life and a good education, but he had a real drive within him to, you know, succeed and maybe slightly different mechanisms from doing that to someone that comes from a working class background, but had the same, or if not, if not more drive. So mm. yeah, that's, that's probably where I've seen it in, in all different kind of walks of life. And I know you've, you know, from, from talking to you before, what would you, what would you class your background as, or would you put it into that any kind of bracket? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I'm a, I, I come from a middle class background, a privileged background. My dad worked extremely hard through his working life and provided a lot of privilege for me. I went to a very, very good private school. We went on holidays. We lived in nice places. We had nice, you know, it's it, absolutely privileged there. No question of it. I think I think it's really interesting for me this conversation because like full disclosure I slightly cringe at it. I cringe even now when I'm talking about it I'm cringing at it because I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I really don't. I I feel and that's why this is a really good conversation mm. to have because I went to a very good private school in which the majority of people there would have been middle class or upper class I guess some working class people on sporting scholarships. I went to university where there would have been even more upper class, Durham University. There was a lot of kind of people from Eton and Harrow and things like that. And then I went into professional cricket, which, you know, you would think is probably more middle class, but actually everyone used to take the piss out of me in the Lancashire dressing room for being like the poshest person they'd ever <laughs> met. And they used to call me, or well, Jimmy Anderson for years called me Ziggy. I don't know if you, you, you might not remember Ziggy was- From Big Brother. From Big Brother, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do remember him. That's oh, what I, I can't believe it. I was, hoping, I was hoping we could just brush past that. <laughs> Ziggy. A, uh, Ziggy, <laughs> honestly, yeah. What a great shout. I'm going to take that on from Jimmy. No, you're not. No, that, <laughs> oh, that's a, oh, God, oh. that's a crushing disappointment. That I was like, Fraser's not going to remember who Ziggy is. Yeah. <laughs> And they used to call me Ziggy the whole time, just think like I was just yeah. the poshest guy ever. And I I had been at university where, and I cringed at some of that. And I feel really uncomfortable with it. I, I, I don't mm. I don't like the tradition and the entitlement and the yeah that stuff that happens in that sort of higher echelons of class. I don't like it. I I hate a sense of entitlement. I just mm. really don't. I it was really interesting though to hear you say that about the myths about classes because I, mm. I want to kind of talk about that more but I think it's really interesting that you know you and I are really really close friends and we mm. come from really different backgrounds in lots and lots of different ways it makes well you tell me I think it makes zero difference to our friendship no not at all and I see that a lot with people that come from middle class or upper class backgrounds are almost embarrassed that they come from that because there's a judgment or a preconception of oh it's all right for you or the silver spoon one. Like if I if I was middle or upper class, that would really wangle at me if someone was like, "Well, you had a head start in life. You had a silver spoon. It's all right for you." I would find I would find that really mm. difficult to deal with. But, I think. Uh, yeah, but I think that's because you've seen the other side. If if mm. you lived all your life in a kind of upper class manner with in those circles, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that that you had that sense of entitlement. Whereas you've seen the other side of it. So you hmm. would cringe at if you, you're like, well, if I was there, I'd, I'd cringe at it. But I mean, I, I definitely, I, I really agree with you around. And, and I actually, you know, I did, I did some research before this pod, as you know, before each one and found some really interesting studies in America around the fact that there's a lot of studies showing that people from more middle class, upper class backgrounds, kids 
actually more likely to suffer with mental health issues because of the level of expectation that's placed on them mm. versus people from lower class I can't, yeah. i'm even struggling to say it yeah less expectation and i thought that was really really interesting point i mean you, you obviously brought up eddie hearn but i close to him the, the other two that I, I think about a lot is is chris eubank jr and connor ben yeah, yeah. who've both are in boxing i mean there's no sport more working class than yeah. boxing brutal and they both have come from money from their fact that their dads were highly highly successful boxers and yet there yeah. they are you wouldn't know would you really in mm. any way I, I think that's really interesting there's a real difference between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic so oh, the one that's me doing this tell me about so this so those two would have an intrinsic motivation to succeed become successful to get to the top to prove a point that kind of thing where extrinsic motivation is someone's doing it to earn something someone's doing it for something outside of that so the money or the fame or whatever might come with it that's what motivates them so a lot of i feel like to get to the top of a professional sport you probably have to have that intrinsic motivation to get there and to drive you can't succeed by going right i want to earn this much money and this is the vehicle for it i don't think you can quite do that i think you have to have to have that but those those two wouldn't have those extrinsic motivations because as you say they come from money yes they'd want to earn their own and be successful in their own right but there's a real hunger and intrinsic motivation to go right i'm going to succeed here there's probably a lot of that i need to prove to people that i can do this i need to prove that i haven't had a leg up or that it's easier for me or that i can't make it to the top and i've done like quite a lot of scouting in football and i've gone on some of these talent id courses and you've seen it makes you recognize where your biases are so that you go and watch a game of football and you see 11 players out there and you don't show a bias towards one because they come from like a similar background to you or you might feel a certain way about about them and their upbringing. So I remember hearing someone talking about, yeah, right, but who's going to want it more? The kid that's getting dropped off in a Range Rover by his mum or the one that's got to get free buses here and travel there. But it's like, actually, yes, that's a, it's a really good point. And this kid has to has to work so much harder just to get to training. But one of the hardest working players that I ever played with came from that affluent background, was dropped off to training in the... Who's that? He's called Jake Gallagher. His brother is Connor Gallagher, who is captain of Chelsea at the minute, mm. who comes from the same background. So Connor would have been... He's gone through the academy system at Chelsea from aged eight. Comes from a very affluent background, middle class. I know for a fact he would have had those posh boy comments and, oh, it's all right for you. You go to this school, you do that. And there's a motivation in it in itself to, to try and prove people wrong in that aspect. But I also saw, you know, his brother was who, who played at a lower level. I didn't know the kind of background he had. I didn't know him inside out until I got to know him later down the line. But I was like, who is this kid? He's doing so much more than everyone else. He's he's super dedicated. He's hardworking. He's training more than anyone else. And then you kind of get to know his story a little bit. And it doesn't quite add up with the bias that I had of, well, the kid that really needs to get out of poverty or get his family out here is going to work twice as hard. Because sometimes those kids who did come from that background will be the first ones off the training pitch and wouldn't really be, wouldn't really be bothered. Whereas this lad, yes, he had a, a stable background and came from, came from a little bit of money, but he was just so driven and so determined. And it, mm. I, I go back and forth on this because again, he comes from a very stable family with maybe the, a better support system in place, you know, to help him with his performance. Whereas the others, Maybe they don't have parents that come and watch them or they don't have people that can support them or guide them in the right way. So there's there's to and fro with that. But I think after going on that course and seeing what I've seen, there was a straight bias from me that if you put two kids together and this is their background, that one's going to want it more. And I, I don't believe in that anymore. Shout out now. I would like us to do another episode on intrinsic and extrinsic mm. motivation. So I think that's fascinating. And I, yeah, really interesting to hear you say that. Just going back to your background, what what difference do you think it made to your education? I know football was the thing that you wanted to go into, but mm. now looking back, how, how do you think your background affected your education? 
with, with the background and and it's it's all I ever knew. Like I didn't know any anything else. I didn't know anyone that came from a different kind of background. Everything was just my world, so I didn't I didn't really pay attention to it. If I look back now, what was it? There wasn't much expectation, if I'm honest, in in going to school and getting high grades. Most people that or most of the adults that I knew. Well, most of the men, I would say, that that I knew that were that were dads on the estate and people like that were labourers, builders, electricians, plumbers, those kind of those kind of roles, who went to work, went to the pub, provided for their families, and and that was that was it really. In terms of my education, I had that drive to be a footballer very early on, and I kept up my education and. My mum pretty much made sure of that, but but the football club also did because they'd be checking in and that was a real help for me that they encouraged education, that they would be checking up with the school and your behaviour and your grades. And if that wasn't up to scratch, you'd be told you're not coming training this week, you have, you have to concentrate on school. So I think they had a real good, they had a real good way of, of keeping young players and young footballers on the right track at school. I don't really know. I went to, I look back now, I went to my, my secondary school was rough. Like it was a rough school. <laughs> it was an all boys school, lots of testosterone people trying to outdo each other. First day I went there, massive fight with these, they they must've been 15 now I look back at it. But you they had a seemed massive like, fight. No, not me. I was well away from all that. We talked about right. this in the uh, on the last episode, Luke, about <laughs> oh, Ruben yeah, Buttery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ruben, um, yeah, that's Ruben. <laughs> but there was this massive fight. And the, the two lads who were in the top year at school, year 11, they seemed like they were about 25. They seemed like giants, but it was a kind of scrappy working class school. But I wouldn't change that for me. You had, and, But you've also had a lot of people that have come out of that school and gone on to be doctors and teachers and gone in, in different mm. walks of life. There's a lad in my class that's in the West End, and I don't think anyone would have predicted that when when we were at school, but... I'd say there was a probably lower lower expectation. There wasn't, I don't know actually, there wasn't much, I didn't feel like there was much pressure from my family and those of my friends around on exam results and things like that. Because I think a lot of people, a lot of the parents wouldn't have gone to university and would have probably gone and got a job or an apprenticeship at 16 to 18. So maybe there was that kind of thing in the background as well. Mm. I think I had an individual kind of pride in my work at school that that maybe drove me on and, and a good family behind me. This is quite an interesting one for me because you went to a private school. Mm. Does that mean there's an expectation that you have to do well because this amount of money is being paid? And it's a fascinating one because I've heard Jamie Redknapp talk about this mm. because he wasn't great in school academically by any means, but went to a real top private school went on to become a professional footballer. But again, his cousin's Frank Lampard, mm. who did really succeed academically in a private school and alongside his football. But there must be a little bit more pressure to actually make the most of this education when you know that it's being paid for, I would imagine. It's a great question. I don't think, I didn't feel it from my parents. Mm. You know, I think it's more the environment that you're in is there's a general expectation of, doing this in exams you know like how you were saying you know results and exam results weren't talked about much mm. I think they were talked about a lot in my school amongst mm. pupils and you know what you're doing next what you're going to do this and and there's definitely something within schooling system I'm, I'm going to bring up something in a minute which that you know my background was kind of the environment is very much pushing you in a certain way educationally yes. versus yours without yeah. us knowing it's happening, which is really interesting. I, I've got a very good friend also in recovery who I, we wrote a book together, which actually hasn't been published. It's, it's a lot to do with his story. And he came from a really rough background in Manchester and was a drug dealer, went, went to jail and has now gone on to be a highly, highly successful businessman. And he talks about something called the advantage of disadvantage so he feels he had an advantage from being disadvantaged because he was he learned how to hustle and kind of fight and scrap and want to move forward all the time and he his point is if he'd come from advantage whether he, he he's not sure he would have had that but mm. 
But I don't know about that because I came from advantage and I feel like the fiercest rage of determination within me to do well mm. all the time and keep pushing forward. So I'm like you, I, I'm a bit 50-50. But leading up to this podcast, I actually did, when I was doing a bit of research, I found that this report that had been done by in recent recent years by a Cambridge professor called Diane Ray, and it's titled Working Class Children Are Damaged by the English Education System. She said that the English school system is profoundly unjust and creates demoralization, demotivation and physical and mental distress among working class children. She did a huge, huge study on this. And there's bits of this that I think are exactly what we're talking about. And even though you and I were kind of unaware of the background or the environment that we were in, there's no question it applied to ours. So let, let, let me mm. give you an example. So she's put in, in fairer, high-achieving state educational systems such as Canada, Japan, and Finland, children who fall behind receive extra support and more, uh, more support in smaller groups in, to enable them to catch up. Perversely, in the English educational system, it is the white middle-class children with assertive parents who are more likely to receive extra help and additional resources versus in the state school system in which you're in big groups and there isn't that extra support provided. I think that kind of rings true to me, I think. Mm. What do you think? In the private school that you went to, how many children would have been in a, in a class in, on, on average? Ten. Really? Yeah, maybe less. Yeah. 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 So that's that's like one of the big differences, obviously, isn't it? Where in my in my high school, you've got 30, 30 to 35, I would say, in a class with one teacher who you can't give in an hour's lesson 30 people who are all going through puberty, who are all putting on a face in front of their mates, who all learn in completely different ways. I think this is something that I've looked into quite a lot as well. And I was at Brentford Football Club on Tuesday and they were talking about this where they said they've been guilty of in team meetings and tactical play and stuff like that, that when they go in a classroom of just assuming that everyone learns in the same kind of way mm. where some people, you know, are, are very visual. Some people need to be walked through it. Some people need that extra bit of care, just like in school, but maybe they've not done it. They've just done, right, I've got a squad of players. They all get the same message. Off you go but realizing that each individual learns slightly differently. I just don't think a teacher who's got 30 pupils has the capability to, to meet everyone's individual needs. And as you say, maybe if you've got an enforceful parent who goes, my son needs this, maybe then the school go, okay, well, maybe we can look to accommodate this then. I don't know. Let me just also, also tell you this. An organisation for economic cooperation and development in 2013 concluded that schools in England are amongst the most socially segregated in the developed world. I mean, that's pretty astonishing. Schools in England are among the most socially segregated in the developed world. When you talk about segregation, there's some bad connotations around that over the history of time with colour, race, religion. Mm. This is social segregation. There's such a difference between the two systems. What do you mean social segregation? In, in what kind of ways? It essentially means like one education system is provided for one social class and there's another one that's provided for another right. one. Yeah, it's yeah. like segregation. It doesn't yeah. mean that they are, you know, forcibly segregated. Yeah. yeah. But someone might argue that, well, yeah, but if you can't afford to pay that yeah. money, you're not going to get yeah. that education. So therefore, the people that are getting that education are going to get more opportunities. Yeah. You're, you're disadvantaged from all one. But yeah. there's a couple of examples I want to introduce to this, which are really interesting. My kids. So my kids currently go to a state secondary school. And you know the area we're in. Mm. It's not a poor area. There's a lot mm. of money around that. So their school, in essence, although it's a state school, it looks almost like a private school mm. because they are in an affluent area and there are lots of ex-pupils who are affluent, who've donated money to the school. So I'm absolutely certain that their school looks nothing like the secondary school that you went to. Mm. Nothing like it. 
And so then I'm like, okay, not only do you have a system in which it's sort of different in state school, private school, there's also a difference in the state schools, depending on which area yeah, you're yeah. in. You yeah. know, and that's mad, isn't it? That there's such a difference. It shouldn't it shouldn't be right. That that doesn't feel fair at all. That's gonna happen, isn't it? And, and a lot of people like you, when I moved to this area, I've moved from Lancashire to to here and all the estate agents do is talk about schools when you get here. It's yeah. Like you're you're within this it's catchment true, area for this school, you're in this catchment area for yeah. this school. And it becomes a massive deal for a lot of people around here, I think. Mm. When you go from this kind of area to a different area, it will be completely different just because of the people that you surround yourself with. And I even find it in, you know, the, the gym that I go to. By the way, Fraser goes to the poshest gym in the <laughs> world. Yeah, right, it goes so go to, to the Ziggy of gyms. <laughs> so I go to a posh gym, but that place honestly like humbles me every morning when I drive in there because <laughs> I drive in in a little Fiat 500 and park usually in between a big G-Wagon and a Lamborghini. So they're like both <laughs> towering over my little Fiat 500. You get that little thing in you where, and I have to find myself doing it sometimes where sometimes I go in and I'm like, they're looking down at me because I'm driving this car and they think that they're much better than I am because they're, but it's only my own head doing it sometimes. And maybe it's because of the background that I come from and the way that, the way that my relationship with money is as well, I think is, is an interesting one. So there's a book called The Psychology of Money and me and a friend have both kind of been reading this recently. And you do have a real emotional kind of connection with money without realizing it. So for instance, I, I work with a, a media lawyer who he's got a, a great take on class as well, because he came from a little town in Kent, went to a grammar school, but became a media lawyer, went to university and in the corporate world, surrounded by people that had gone to private school, found himself talking a bit posher, being around people that were slightly different and kind of changed his ways a little bit to fit in with them so we we do sessions together and work with people and because he's been in that world of although it doesn't come from like huge amounts of money has has been around lawyers in that world that talk about money in a different way when we're sending an email to a client saying this is what the price is or this is it he's he's very much like this is the price like off you go me i'm like oh like that's a little bit much that's i'm not sure if i'm i don't know if i could charge that and just because of my relationship growing up, like what a hundred pound was to me, it's nothing to maybe someone else or what 500 pound was to me was nothing to someone else. And there's a lot of that connection within money where I remember even when, when I signed one of my first professional contracts, someone that I know, an adult who was like close to the family, he was like, took me 20 years to earn what you're earning there or something like that. One of those comments took me 20 years of grafting in my role to get what you're earning there. And I don't know, there was just like that relationship with money was, oh, it's a little bit too much if I do this or that. Mm. And it's just, it does, it has like a, something I'm working on, but it had a bit of a hold on me, probably because of the background I came from. My wife, Jo, she has a similar relationship with money and she came mm. from a privileged background. I think there's something, it's not just background. I think mm. there's something else about the exchange of money, which sometimes she feels exactly the same as you. Yeah. Like when she's charging somebody, it's like, oh God, I can't do that. You know, no, that's not right. And money was just, that uh, was a subject that was never, ever talked about. No, it was never no. talked about. And it felt like everyone around me was struggling for money or didn't have much disposable income. And I think that's probably played a part in, mm. in my spending and in my, you know, my life as well. But yeah. in a, you know, it has, it has its benefits and, and has its downfalls, but I agree that if state schools are completely different all over the country, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And my one, when I look at it, yes, it was a, it was quite a rough school, but it taught me incredible lessons because if you look at my school, it was in, it was in Battersea in South London and you could split that school in thirds. So as when you talk about diversity, a third of the lads in that school were white lads, a third were black lads and probably a third were like Colombian, which there's a huge like Colombian, especially like around Stockwell and the Oval, like those kind of areas. There's a massive Colombian kind of mixed heritage there. So I grew up learning from all of these people, really. Mm. I didn't know it at the time, but learning about diversity and I didn't see, I didn't really see color and I didn't see things like that. 
my daughter lives up in Lancashire and goes to a school. And I think there's, I think I've seen one black pupil in the whole school. So she's not getting those lessons in diversity that maybe I got. And there's different things that you pick up from people, different life skills and different things that we had to do, like getting on a bus to school on your own. It isn't just the actual school day in the education system. There's all the things around that school that you're learning about. But if you take a state school in, you know, around where we are here and one in a, in a slightly different area, it is chalk and cheese. And you're also going to get teachers that want to teach in this area and that are maybe earning a little bit more money as a teacher, teachers from that area that maybe don't want to be there that long. It's a, it's an interesting system. The, the one question I was going to ask you, Luke, yeah. there, you know, you were talking about private school yeah. and the school I went to. And you said you kind of got pushed in a certain direction without really realizing it. Do you think there was a mentality within your school of the kids that went to it were kind of thinking anything's possible and were kind of shooting for the stars? Whereas in a working class state school, sometimes it's like I was always told, I don't know, you're being almost like you're being a bit ambitious there. Mm. Or yeah, and you you almost get a patronizing, well, if you keep working hard, maybe. And it was very much go school, get yourself a trade or do that. And it's kind of lower expectations, but also the kids maybe aren't dreaming as big because they're not seeing it around them. Do you think the kids in your school are thinking, I can go and do that and be that that, that kind of difference? Mm. To be honest, your question is exactly where I was about to take this because I think expectations and role models is a really interesting, especially mm. for men, for boys. I think it's a really interesting one. I don't know if you've watched much of the comedian Mickey Flanagan. Yeah, I love Mickey Flanagan. Oh my God, he's the funniest guy. And he he, <laughs> he talked about how when he was at school, like how, you know, expectations were really low. And it was like going around the classroom going, you know, what do you want to be when you're older? And he was like, and my mate Eddie, he said he wanted to be a van driver. And everyone was like, <laughs> go on, Eddie, see if you can be a van driver. <laughs> you dreamer. <laughs> yeah, you dream. Yeah, they were. That was like, you dreamer. Yeah. God, good old Eddie. He's always coming up with mad stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think that expectation plays a big factor in a positive way. For me, yeah. although I had professional sport and I went to university, I was, you know, part-time professional cricketer at that time. You could You could do both because of the summer nature of it. You know, I know that pathway was very much like people going to university, then they'll they'll get their degree and then they're going to London to become a stockbroker or a mm. whatever it is. And there was very much like a pathway of doing that. And looking back, that's a pathway of earning loads of money, isn't it? And it, and it wasn't it, it wasn't just about shooting from the stars, but there felt like an absolute direction as to how to do this. Mm. And, and from what you're describing that doesn't exist in in the more working class background. And I think the expectation level and what you see, and I, w- I want to ask you this question, is as a young boy, a teenager, what you see of your father, I think that probably shapes some expectations. Eddie Hearn and Barry Hearn, it shapes some expectations as to what's possible, what capable. However, your dad wasn't in your life mm-hmm. that much. And you wanted to be a professional footballer. So your dad, that expectation or that drive didn't come from your dad, did it? No. So how do you, how does that all sit with you? I'm going to butcher this quote. I think it's Barack Obama who said it. Oh, he, said every, <laughs> he said, every young boy is either trying to live up to their, their father's expectations. So be like him or do absolutely everything to avoid being like him. He said, there's no in-between. You're either trying to live up to being that guy or you're trying to do everything to to not be him. And there's no kind of like gray area in the middle. And I think that's, I think that's pretty, pretty true. I'll have to look it up because mm. it's probably not Barack Obama and I've not said it right. <laughs> Michelle <now>. Obama. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I agree. I think when you look at role models and male role models, you either aspire to be like someone that you really respect or you try and be maybe what you never had. And that was always a, a big thing for me, especially when I became a dad and I wanted to be the dad that I didn't really have. And that gave me a motivation in a different way. Whereas I know a lot of people that are really close with their with their dads and they're like, I want to give my kid exactly what he gave me. He gave me a brilliant grounding. He was a role model, that kind of thing. So you can use role models and not having a role model there in the kind of, in kind of the same way. But that again, it was quite normal with all my, most of my mates in school didn't have dads around. Like it was, it was really normal 
I think that's different as well. Like you, you normalize certain behaviors with the group of people that you're with and even coming away from like the schooling system and, and role models. I think like if you're, if you're embedded within an area and I've had this even in my adult life, I was in an area where I didn't really want to be there. A very like working class area. You had people of all different kinds of backgrounds there as well, but I felt like the people there were very glass half empty, were very survival mode. And it is survival mode, you know, when you are when you are that. Then I moved to a more affluent area and just the people that you surround yourself with, again, a little bit like you in school, they're glass half full. They think things are possible. You can go and do that thing that you were thinking of or that business that you were starting. And there's a you just surround yourself with, you know, a certain type of person. You're like, actually I feel quite inspired now after that, instead of feeling a little bit dragged down and it, it maybe isn't a class thing because I don't want to seem like I want to hang around just people that are middle class or that are doing well for themselves because again bringing it back to recovery meetings that's a, an amazing thing for me with recovery meetings because especially around here because you will get someone that's All living you, you'll get someone that's mm. living in homeless shelter someone that's surviving that's really grafting then you'll get someone that drives off from the meeting in a Lamborghini. Mm-hmm. Like it's a complete leveler. It's a complete equalizer. When you walk into that room of people of all sorts of different backgrounds and most of them, you don't really, you just see them in a room. You don't really know. Well, especially first off, you don't really know their story outside of it. And then you see someone has this unbelievable successful business. You see someone that come from a working class background that was drinking at 10 years old and didn't have a role model around. And then you see someone that went to to private school, had amazing upbringing that didn't really feel like they had much trauma. And both of them ended up doing the same kind of thing to escape what was going on. Mm -hmm. So I know for a fact that in addiction and and alcoholism, it does not discriminate at all when it comes comes to that part. I've seen people from every walk of life possible. And then again, in the world of like being successful, it doesn't Maybe there are advantages and disadvantages. Like your your friend said there, he's probably got an advantage in some aspects that he was disadvantaged. But then someone else might go, well, I've got an advantage because I had this support system in school around me mm-hmm. and I had the people that pushed me up. So there's kind of to and fro in. I think there's a, and there's not one way. There's not, it's not going, everyone that goes to, from this background is going to go this way. And everyone that goes from that background is going to be that way. There's a complete individualization, mm-hmm. but it's just a, it's a fascinating topic. Mm. Can I ask you a question just around when you, you're talking about your life on the estate and lots of kids not having their dads around regularly? How did that affect behavior for, for young boys? Mm. And also within that, I want to kind of add their behavior with their mums. Like I know I know your relationship with your mum, mm. but I'm speaking as a father. I I think it's really important for young boys to see from their dads how they treat women mm. and that they treat them with respect and they they understand how to treat women i guess mm. is the simplest way but how was it for you yourself and your mates and the people yeah. around general behavior and general behavior towards mums most were very very close to mums but you right. you almost become a protector of your mum from the age of like 10 11 with mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that went on in some of these lads lives as well you almost become that protector figure of your mum the relationship with women it wasn't a behavior that was modeled around me or modeled around a lot of my friends and a lot of them went down a very different path to me so i had football as a as a real focus point a real pathway for me i wanted to behave i wanted to be a good person but that kept me there to make sure that i didn't go either side of that line as well whereas the others they never they never they had a complete freedom didn't really have massive consequences if they went in and did something that was a bit silly or went down a certain path there wasn't that that figure that pulled them in there wasn't that focus for them to to go no I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that because that could jeopardize this I couldn't understand when I was when I was in school when you get to the age of like 11 or 12 I think I said this before I couldn't get my head around that people didn't know what they wanted to do when they were older Mm-hmm. A lot of the others were just like, well, I don't know, I'll just see how it goes. Probably go to college at 16 and get a job or do this or do that. I was like, how can you not know what you what you want to do? I had that, that tunnel vision of this is exactly what I'm going to do. And if I don't, 
then maybe I'll be a PE teacher or something in sport. That was my my kind of thing. You kind of left to learn on your own and and from other people around you. And it's it's why people like have you seen the video of Ian Wright with when he's reunited with the old mm. school teacher that he had? Yeah, yeah. So it's people amazing. Like, people like Ian Wright that didn't have those role models, you almost latch on to the closest thing to that. So it might be a teacher or a coach or a community worker around the area. And you, you tend to get a lot of young footballers that, or sports people. I talk about football because it's the industry that I grew up in. But they'll really gravitate towards a certain teacher that's a man or a certain football coach that was on the estate and took the team just because they may be seeing something there that they haven't had modeled to, to them before. And I think it's massive for for young kids to have that that male role model and to show them what you know how you behave and and how to how to treat women especially because I see it in our society as well. Like I, don't, I still don't think it happens anywhere near anywhere near where it should be. The point I was going to ask you is mm. I don't know if it was for the whole of that school, but I know that you it was boarding school as well, wasn't it? Mm. How does yeah, that affect? And what was the age, what was the age that you would have been boarding at? So I went when I was nine. How does that affect male role models around you and mm. and and learning to be a man at that age? It's a different experience in that you. It's not just around your relationship with your dad. I think it's also your relationship with your parents. You have to do a lot of your growing up with your friends, right? Mm. Because you're there with them a lot. For I'm trying to think how long a term is, but call it eight weeks long long ones might be 10 weeks so you're 36 weeks of the year you're with your friends I mean obviously there's little half terms and weekends stuff like that but essentially you're doing a lot of growing up with your friends and so it makes you very independent from your parents to an extent there's Mm. a lot of benefits from that you become very self-sufficient you sort your own shit out Mm. but it also has some other sides to it which now as a parent I, I'm probably a bit too far the other way, you know, whereas if something happens to one of the kids, I, I want them to speed dial me, you know, and be like, now tell me. And sometimes I wonder if I'm a bit too overbearing or a bit too much from that side of things. So boarding school, you do, you do that growing up with your friends and it's different. You don't mm. reach out to your parents in the same way that you would do ordinarily. And that creates a lot of power within you and a lot of resolve to to sort stuff out and I think that lives with me today you know if I'm mm. I need to sort stuff out I, I don't bemoan it I roll up my sleeves and I get on with it and, and I take responsibility for it and I think some of that was was born from my boarding school experience but it changes the dynamic that you have with your parents a little bit and and I don't mean that in a negative way I mean I need to be really careful with that I don't I have a great relationship with my parents and but it, it it's just a different experience to coming home every day I want to move it on to professional sport, actually, because obviously it's our backgrounds and it, in two different sports and in two different places in society. So just to give some context to this, cricket has a real problem nowadays, has done in recent, in the last 20 years of attracting state schools, cricketers to go into professional cricket. Even though, for instance, in my Lancashire dressing room, it was a lot of working class background generally speaking there's a lot of middle class and up movement into cricket generally and in football it's the opposite right and it's a much more of a working class sport are there are there any challenges to being a middle class upper class person trying to get into professional football you know we've talked about Jamie Redknapp Frank Lampard Mm. the Gallagher brothers is there is there a perception around it that it's like this isn't your place to be Frank Lampard and Jamie Redknapp, yeah. their surnames yeah. would probably have offered them comfort from that. Where you mm. know, someone, but how do you think it is? You know, some kid coming from Eton School ah, trying to yeah, make yeah. it. Well, how do you think that would work? So there's a good point, and I actually have a good friend of mine that went to Eton, who became a professional footballer. He was at Chelsea ah, with me in the academy. Brilliant. He's called Michael Doughty, and his dad. He's called Prince be- Harry. <laughs> <laughs> his dad was the owner of Nottingham Forest when we were kids and he was at Chelsea with me in the academy 
and got released, but had a really good professional career. An interesting thing with him, and he's got an unbelievable drive because he's a he's got a business now. He's got a trainer business called Hilo, like real like running trainers. Oh and yeah, stuff. no, but, I know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah sustainable yeah. trainers. Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's, I just think he's a little bit. I feel like he's a bit braver than a lot of people that I know. And there are so many people that I know that get to the age of about 27 or 28 in a professional career. And we talked about this before. When you retired, you were like, thank God that's over. Like mm. that kind of feeling. And I had similar. I was like, God, I'm not going to miss that part. He got to a point when he was 27, 28, where he was just like, I'm just not enjoying this anymore. It's mm. draining me. His wife was pregnant. And he was like, that's me. I'm done. I'm walking away from the game. And I remember so many people going, he's mad, he's 27. How can he, he's got mm. years left in him. But he had, the, I feel like he had a mindset of, no, nah, when, when this isn't serving me, I'm done. Where I know a lot of people that are 31, 32, 33, they're hanging on for a last paycheck and they're mm. hanging on going, I'm so worried about earning money after this and I'm not enjoying it, but I've just got to keep grinding. I've got to keep doing this. He was mm. like really brave and maybe it comes from that mentality and, in his own right, he done he done very well for himself. He had a he had a good career, played in the championship, played in League One for a long time. But he had a mindset of going, right, this is done now, it's not serving me. I'm gonna go and do something else and make a success of myself in somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But he used to get those comments, I know, because I've spoken to him of he's got loads of money, that kid, or he goes to this school or that kind of thing. An interesting one now is a lot of the top Premier League clubs will when you're about twelve it's kind of like boarding school. You'll go into live in digs with another family. So mm. you're getting a lot of these working class kids. The football club will either teach on site. So you have the lads that are in classrooms on site, but a lot of them will use a private school. So yeah, lads will go from, from being in a, a real kind of tough state school to being chucked into a very well-off private education. And it's, it's, it's complete chalk and cheese for them. The part that that reminds me of a little bit is you said that there were some people in your school on sports scholarships. Mm. Would they be looked at any differently I was. in terms of class? Yeah. Not at my school, not really. Yeah. But it was interesting when I went to university and it was a very traditional Durham University. My school, this is the irony of it, my school was sort of considered like a little bit like, oh, it's that sporty school with the kids mm. who are not quite... I felt that anyway. A big part of it is the is the accessibility. Like with with football, you need a ball, you mm. need you know a few mates. You can go and kick around in a cage or at school, or whatever. My school, we never did anything else. We never did cricket. We never did rugby. We never did anything else other than you know a game of football and some athletics. Whereas a sport like cricket, if there's access to it, and rugby and rugby's similar, you know things like golf, where you need slightly different variables in that game and it's mm. well you're saying that you know no, but golf, streets golf of cr- india yeah streets no, of india yeah, you've got yeah, kids playing it's true yeah but i mean traditionally got golf and well golf definitely but cricket as well yeah expe- equipment's expensive yeah so that makes and, and one, one i find interesting is the difference between rugby league and rugby union mm. so rugby i think it is it rugby where the, the the one with all the northwest clubs is like rugby league, league isn't it yeah yeah come on mate and that's so a very sounding like a real southerner here I know, yeah, yeah. but that's very yeah. like working class yeah. like tough lads whereas rugby union again is is quite you know the schooling system kind of takes place and i've heard a lot of mm. you know a lot about that and certain schools will tend to have the players end up going and making it as as england internationals and stuff like that mm. there's definite you know advantages and disadvantages but also that accessibility of, of a certain sport i think is mm. is different in you know different backgrounds as well it's like footballers did you take the piss out of someone if they were from a posh background yeah he would he would get taken the piss out for sure yeah, but someone yeah. else would be taking the piss out for something else that was just yeah, their, that, that's a great their thing probably yeah 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 i mean the fact like that you look like ziggy a, uh, <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just not i i'm it's been one of the great disappointments of this podcast this episode is that you knew who ziggy was i was like desperate i've said that to a couple of people <laughs> like i don't remember who ziggy is from big brother uh, who is he and i'm like um well he was that you know Long-haired, handsome, really cool guy. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who have not watched it, there was this guy in there called Ziggy. I don't even why on earth he was called Ziggy. (laughs) Is that's that's a whole other thing. Uh, I I remember far too much about that that um, that series. 
Yeah. And uh, he was a kind of long-haired, posh guy and, yeah, looked nothing like me and there is no resemblance. On a, on a different note, if someone said to you, if someone gave you like the posh posh boy shout, like shout mm. or something like that, how yeah. did that make you feel then? Were you trying to go, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not posh. That like, were you trying to come out of it or honestly it made me rage. I just yeah. hated it. I hated it. And I think I, I don't know why I've got such a I, I feel like I have got a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it. Not my background necessarily. Yeah. About that subject. I just yeah. it's like I don't like, and it goes both ways. It's like I, I hate that upper class entitlement, or you know, where someone thinks they're better than someone else. When yeah. They, I, honestly, it goes to my bones. Yeah, like, I get that. Oh god, I, I just I hate it. Uh, I just found it really interesting you saying about the myth of working hard because you know, mm. if so, may, and maybe that's driven me over the years. Maybe it, like in that Lancashire dressing room, I thought, right, I'm going to work harder yeah. than any of you guys to show you that it makes no difference. And yeah. But I definitely still hold it today. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not sure. I, I think you know. And kind of wrapping this up in a way, a nice way to do it. I don't. Th- I think class really affects people's expectation levels of what's possible because they can mm. only. You can only see dream of what you can see in one way or mm. another. I mean, social media's changed that a bit, but you know, role models around you. I think that we've talked about that a lot. But I think this, where that motivation comes from, that's fascinating because mm. has my motivation, that rage in me to do well, is that coming from anything to do with my background, both, you know, mm. one way or the other? I don't know. I don't think it is. I'm not sure. It's a good one for us to pick up another time. Fraser, that was, I, I mean, I don't know about mm. you. I don't know if anyone listening here has fallen off to sleep, but I found that absolutely <laughs> fascinating. I love that. I, I've, never, I've never had a conversation about it before. And no. it's, again, it's like that's the topics that we talk about on here, the the best ones are usually where, like you said at the beginning, you feel a little bit uncomfortable with certain things that you're saying mm. in there, and they're the best ones because this is about having those conversations that people don't really have. Well, Fraser, as always, big thank you. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Men podcast. You can, as always, find us on all major social platforms, including Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And we will be promoting every episode via our own personal social media. So please come and find us. As ever, we want it to be as interactive as possible. So please comment, message us about subjects that you would like us to talk about. And if you've liked what you've heard, then please go ahead and hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating as it helps others to find us. Thank you and goodbye for now.